Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everyone. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the history of newspapers with renowned local journalist Tom Eblen. As many of you know, Eblen became the managing editor of the Lexington Herald-Leader in 1998. After working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and for the Associated Press for 14 years. Soon after reprising his role as managing editor in 2008, he started writing as a columnist for the paper until retiring in March of 2019. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for joining us for the podcast today. Good to be here. How's the last six, seven months been since retirement? Well, it's not really retirement. It's been very busy, actually. I'm working some at the Carnegie Center doing projects there related to promoting Kentucky literary arts. And I've been doing some freelance projects, working uh, on a couple of books Mm -hmm. and chasing my grandkids. So that's... uh, That's fun. All all of that. Keeping pretty busy. I figured you probably weren't working on deadlines, but it seems like you've created a lot of deadlines for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) But that's good. Yeah, it is. So we invited you today for the podcast to talk about the local newspapers and the history of our local newspapers. That's probably the most used resource in the Kentucky Room. And we want to highlight how journalism has progressed here locally, mm-hmm. especially. Can you tell us a little bit about the first newspaper that was established here in Lexington? Uh, well, and who was behind the, it? Yeah, back in the 1780s when Kentucky was looking at becoming a state and separating mm-hmm. from Virginia, one of the things that the uh, constitutional conventions that they had in Danville every year, they said, you know, we really need a newspaper to spread this. And so They decided in 1786 to appoint a committee to go try to get a printer from the east to come and start a newspaper in Kentucky. And so they went to a couple and they looked at the prospects and said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) At that point, a guy named John Bradford stepped forward. And Bradford had come here first in 1779. He was a surveyor from Virginia. And he had come and surveyed and and had large land holdings. He was really a, a business guy. And he says, "Okay, well, if you'll guarantee me state printing jobs, I'll mm-hmm. start a newspaper. I think the Constitutional Convention thought he was going to start this in Danville because that's where they met. But yeah. in what may have been Kentucky's first economic development incentive, the town of Lexington said, well, we'll give you a free lot if you'll start your paper here. Okay. So, And not only that, he actually, because there wasn't anything on that lot, he got a use of the City Hall cabin to put his printing shop. And so he started the Kentucky Gazette in August of 1787. He and his brother, his younger brother Fielding, had gone to Philadelphia to secure a press And in Pittsburgh, they bought some type, and Fielding got some training as a printer in Pittsburgh. They come back, and the first issue apparently was pretty hard to get out because there's there's an apology from John Bradford saying, oh, yeah, we're late, and my brother was sick, and he wasn't any help, and our type got all scrambled coming down. And and so uh, it's probably no surprise that his younger brother left him at that point. And, uh, <laughs> when things weren't working out. Things weren't like. working out. But, uh, but anyway, the Kentucky Gazette was really the second newspaper west of the Alleghenies, the first west of Pittsburgh. And it was kind of modeled on the Pittsburgh Gazette, which was the first newspaper there. And this got started, and a lot of the early copy was really things about what was going outside of Lexington. There wasn't really a lot of local news at the time that was collected. And there's a lot of theories about that. One of them may have been that Lexington was so small, everybody knew what was going on anyway. Yeah, and they really wanted to know. Gossip what, and, yeah. Exactly. They wanted to know what was going on elsewhere. 
But there was a lot of uh, business for advertising because, you know, what you've got to remember is that, you know, from the late 1790s to the after the War of 1812, Lexington was really the most important city in Western America. So there was a lot of business here, a lot of stuff being imported. You could pay your subscription to the Kentucky Gazette if you didn't have hard cash. There wasn't a lot of that around. You could also pay it in corn and wheat or whiskey. Oh, wow. (laughs) Or ash flooring, of all things. But... uh, But yeah, Bradford was a fascinating guy. He was not only the first newspaper publisher, he was also the first book printer uh, in Lexington. He helped start what's now the public library. He was one of the founders of the library. He was quite a businessman. He was a mathematician, kind of an inventor, uh, a real entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. uh, really more than a journalist. And he was also a big promoter of education. He was one of the trustee, early trustees and the longtime chairman of Transylvania University. And he was really the key figure in bringing Horace Holly to Transylvania in 1818, which transformed that from kind of a mediocre school into one of the nation's best universities for a few years until uh, Kentucky politics ran Holly out of, <laughs> out of the state. But, but Bradford was a really fascinating guy. His first competitor was actually an employee of his, a guy named James Stewart, who had been an employee. And then in 1795, he goes out on his own and creates Stewart's Kentucky Herald. Named uh, it after himself. Named it after himself, yeah. Of course, apparently John Bradford didn't like the competition because by 1802, he had bought up the Herald and shut it down. Like any good businessman would. That's right. And he also, Bradford also started kind of a second paper off and on back in the 20s, the the Public Advertiser, which was also the Bradford family. Mm -hmm. But anyway, in this, after about 1800, you see this real kind of explosion of newspapers. And I don't really have an accurate count, but by some estimates, there were anywhere from 50, 60 newspapers in Lexington in the 1800s. Because, you know, a lot of these, they were they were very small and they would tend to come and go. Just for a few years, like we have some on microfilm at the library and then some of them run just for a few years and then kind right, of disappear. Right. So, And a lot of them, they were, they were business ventures, but they were also to promote politics. So you would have, you know, a Federalist newspaper like the Western Monitor and you would have a Democratic Republican newspaper, which was kind of the prevailing thing. One of the first really major newspapers, though, to, to take hold was the Lexington Observer and Reporter. The Reporter was a very early newspaper, started in 1808, and the Observer came along in 1831. And the Observer and Reporter, really from the 1830s through the early 1880s, was pretty much the dominant newspaper. It was actually started by a guy named Edwin Bryant, but D.C. Wycliffe became the editor in 1841 and really served as the editor until really the the dawn of the Civil War. And later on, the editor was a guy named George W. Rank, who you also may be familiar with because he was an early Lexington historian and wrote uh, quite a lot about Lexington history in the late 1800s. But, you know, so you had a lot of these that were kind of regular newspapers. And then there was a lot of kind of, in a way, newspapers that colorful characters would start. Yeah. To kind so of anybody promote with their, an opinion, basically. Right, to promote their uh, ideology or, or whatever. And one of the most famous is probably the True American, yeah. which was started by Cassius Marcellus Clay, mm-hmm. who was a really interesting character. He was the son of Kentucky's largest slaveholder, General Green Clay. But when he, he went to Transylvania, he left Transylvania after his servant accidentally burned down the building of Transylvania. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> 
He never, it's funny, it wasn't known who had done that until late in life, and he wow. finally owned up to it. His slave had apparently been polishing his boots and let a can and went to sleep, and a candle burned the, the main building at Transylvania that was in Ingrats Park. <laughs> but when Clay went to, he left Transylvania and he went to Yale, and when he was at Yale, he really became an opponent of slavery. Not so much because some of it was personal liberty, but he also just thought it was kind of bad for business, bad for the state. I know you've had a, a whole show on him, but he was very set in his opinions. He was always kind of looking for a fight, or at least yes, he wasn't avoiding one. To say the least. <laughs> to say the least. He was, the least yeah. he was very good with a pistol and a Bowie knife and cut a few people up with a Bowie knife. But he started The True American in 1845 as an anti-slavery newspaper. And he published kind of periodic issues. And of course, he it did not make him any many friends in Lexington, no. which primarily a favored slaveholding. It was a big center of slavery. Finally, a group of Lexington people, you know, gathered, you know, how are we going to get rid of this guy? <laughs> how are we going to get his press shut down? And so their opportunity came when he got typhoid fever. And Clay was then living at Morton House, which is, still stands in Duncan Park. And when he was down with typhoid fever, these citizens went down to his newspaper office down on Mill Street, uh, there at, at Main Street, and packed up his press and sent it to Cincinnati, where he where he continued to publish once he got well. He actually won a $2,500 judgment from some of those, from a couple of those really? guys. Yeah, which was kind of a surprise. But, but you know, Clay, had, Clay knew that people would eventually be after him, so he had fortified his office with a couple of brass cannons, and he had gunpowder in the basement and an escape hatch. But when he got sick, all of that, no, of none of no. that was necessary. Nope. No, but they moved him to Cincinnati, of course, after. Uh, was right. he here long with, with the True American? It was just in about 18, I think, trying to remember the exact, I think it was in August of 1845. So he, he was not here long, and then it was published for about another year off and on in Cincinnati. It still said it was published in Lexington, even though it was, it was actually it was, printed in Cincinnati. Yeah. I actually have a copy of one of the Cincinnati printed. I've got I've got a small collection of of, <laughs> of these of little newspapers that I got that most of them came out of government archives so they're uh, they're very very well kept. Another newspaper I think we discussed previously is the Lexington Standard. Yeah, famously edited by RCO Benjamin. Right. Yeah. Well, the Standard was an African American newspaper and it was started in 1892 by a guy named William Decker Johnson and it was a, a small paper that that covered kind of. African-American life, civil rights issues, religious issues. And Johnson in 1897 sold it to Robert Charles O'Hara Benjamin, who was a lawyer and an experienced newspaper man. He had worked for newspapers all over the country, both black and white newspapers at that time, and was a practicing lawyer. He was originally from St. Kitts Island in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. But I believe his wife was from Lexington, and that was kind of one of the attractions here. But but Benjamin was kind of a take no prisoners kind of editorialist, and he was, you know, very, you know, in, in a lot of really modern ideas about civil rights and equal rights. Mm -hmm. And he was very active in urging African Americans to register to vote. And that was not very popular in white dominated Lexington. Mm -hmm. Lexington at this time, too, this is about the turn of the century, and Lexington was a real machine politics town. Yeah. And so you had, you know, a series of political bosses who, who really ran things in Lexington from after the Civil War, really up, in, up into the 1940s. So one day, Benjamin was downtown uh, near the, the corner of, of Water and Spring Street, I believe, it, basically where Lexington Center is now. Yeah. And there was a precinct worker named Mike Moynihan who was hassling some black men who were trying to register to vote. And Benjamin, you know, criticized him and then... 
later that day, Moynihan tracks Benjamin down and shoots him in the back six times and kills him. And is basically let off in, because of self-defense. Yeah, even though he shot him in the back. Even though he shot him in the back and he hunted him down. And yeah, yeah. but that was kind of, kind of Lexington justice at the time. Yes, unfortunately. But Benjamin was, was, a, was a very interesting guy. He's actually buried in African Cemetery Number no. 2, I guess about 10 years after his murder. Some of his admirers raised a bunch of money and built a very nice headstone that's still out there. But he was also a poet, just a, a very, very— uh, Yeah, he did a lot. He was a lawyer, poet, yeah. journalist. A man ahead of his time. Yeah, he was. Another newspaper is the Bluegrass Blade. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit about the, the that Yeah, the Bluegrass Blade, you know, the, the Lexington Standard was controversial, but it was not nearly as controversial as the Bluegrass Blade, which was published from about 1884 off and on until about 1910. But it was started by a guy named Charles Chilton Moore, who was the grandson of Barton Stone, who was one of the founders of the Disciples of Christ denomination. And uh, he had, you know, grown up in this church. He was ordained as a minister by Alex Campbell, who was a very well-known religious leader. But for some reason, he kind of turned against Christianity in a big way. And so he created the Bluegrass Blade as kind of a free-thinking newspaper, basically anti-religious. He published it on Sunday, he said, so that people would have something decent to read (laughs) instead of all this religious propaganda. And he was for equal rights. He was for civil rights, which was both both kind of unusual for women's suffrage. He was jailed a couple of times for his views, which I I know once he was jailed for advocating free love. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, there was a a pretty good biography of Moore written a few years ago called The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, and that was probably pretty close. He died in 1907, and the— you know, subsequent publishers kind of limped along for two or three years. The newspaper went out of business. So another character in the newspaper histories, especially where it comes to uh, women's rights, is, of course, Madeline McDowell Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. And she used her influence to advocate for women's rights at the Lexington Herald. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Her husband at the time, although they later divorced, was mm-hmm. Deshea Breckenridge, who was the editor of the Lexington Herald. So she had a little influence with the editor, and she— was a great promoter not only of women's rights, but also kind of a lot of progressive social causes at the time, you know, helping poor people and education. She was very involved in in creating, you know, orphanages. There's a a group called the Civic League that was very, very kind of progressive social movement. So this is when a lot of this is going on around the country. And so she also helped organize and promote some women's suffrage marches in Lexington, which, of course, got front page coverage in the Lexington Herald. My favorite quote from Madeline McDowell Breckenridge is she was writing a Kentucky governor who she thought she had an understanding that he was going to support a women's suffrage law, but he kind of backed down at the last minute and she wrote him an angry letter in which she noted that Kentucky women are not idiots, even if they are closely related to Kentucky men. <laughs> so I've heard that quote before. I didn't realize it was um, attributed to her. That is, that is true. Yes. <laughs> interesting. So the Lexington Herald, who started that newspaper when, and when, when did, did it start? Well, it grew out of a newspaper called the Lexington Daily Press, which was started in 1870 yeah. by three men, one of whom was Henry Duncan. Mm-hmm. Duncan is the person who Duncan Park is named for. That was his home and from the 1870s until he died in 1912. And then I believe it was his daughter sold it to the city as a park. But Duncan was a Harvard-educated lawyer who really found that he was a lot more interested in journalism than law. And so 
he was among the creators of this. And the Daily Press was was the only newspaper in Lexington that had Associated Press news in it. So that was a big deal because, yeah. you know, really news from other places, the way most newspapers would get it would be they would kind of exchange news with change subscriptions with other newspapers, and then they would rewrite things oh. that they would find interesting and put them in the paper. But often they would be, you know, weeks, if not months old. So the AP in the 1850s really revolutionized that because they set up a telegraph system. And so you got really fresh news. So if if you were a member of the AP, you got a lot better news. It was also the first newspaper to have automatic presses. It had steam-powered presses, if you can imagine that. So anyway, the Daily Press, kind of eventually by 1895, it had become the Morning Herald. And then in 1900, it becomes the Lexington Herald. But it was, it was a kind of support of the Democratic Party, which at that time... You know, you've got to remember that in the 19th century, the kind of the philosophies of the political parties were pretty much opposite of what they are now. Yeah. The, the Democrats tended to be the conservatives yeah. and the Republicans tended to be the liberals. And Kentucky then as now was was a very conservative state for the most part. The, the Herald was the Democratic paper. The Morning Leader, which had been started in 1888, was a Republican newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then it in 1901 becomes the Lexington Leader. They are operating separately until 1937 when John Stoll, who was a lawyer in town, whose firm is still around, Stoll, Keen, and Ogden, that was, that was Stoll's firm. John Stoll buys the Herald, and he merged the Sunday papers pretty quickly, but the other days of the week were published separately, and they had separate news staffs and separate editorial staffs. And this was, was not uncommon. You would have a single owner with two newspapers, and so... You know, they would have a Democratic editorial page in one and a Republican editorial page in the other, so they played it both ways. Yeah. The Atlanta newspapers were the, were the same once the Journal and the Constitution were combined. The Herald and the Leader, they eventually, I think, merged the, the Saturday papers in 1965, and then the entire staff and the entire paper in, in 1983 was merged to become the Herald Leader. And this was a number of years after it had, this was, I guess, about 10 years after it had been gone out of local control, and it was bought by Knight Newspapers, which was based in Ohio. And John, John S. Knight was one of the, the brothers who, who owned Knight Newspapers. And he ended up buying the Herald and the Leader because he was a horseman, and so he would come to town and for the horse sales and things in Keeneland and kind of saw the newspapers and decided they would be a good investment. Knight eventually merges with Ritter Publications, and Knight and Ritter really made a lot of improvements and kind of took the Herald and the Leader away from being a very kind of locally controlled provincial newspapers. For one thing, in the 1960s, when they were locally owned, the Herald and the Leader gave very little coverage to the local civil rights movement which is, is something the newspaper wrote about in 2004, did a big series kind of exploring, you know, what it had failed to cover decades ago. I remember that issue. I remember it yeah. very well, yeah. And it was interesting when, when we did that, that really sparked a number of newspapers around the country to, to do the similar things. Yeah. To reflect on where we were and where we've come and how we can do better. And then uh, the Herald and Leader were owned by Knight Ritter until 2006 when McClatchy and Knight Ritter it was heavily in debt, put itself up to sa- for sale, and McClatchy out of California, which is an old family-owned company, bought the Herald Leader and, and runs it today. So historically speaking, it seems like the newspapers, you know, were started to convey a specific message or a specific opinion. 
nowadays you see a lot of people arguing that journalism should be unbiased. There should should be impartiality in the way it is, however difficult that is. But and like from a historical perspective, it seems like that ideology just was thrown out the window. <laughs> well, you you really in the beginning it was newspapers were very partisan. They were generally yes. party organs. Yeah. You know, you had some of the ones in Lexington were like the Kentucky Whig or the National <laughs> Unionist. Yeah. You know, you know various ones who had specific ideologies they, they were promoting. But after radio was invented in the 1920s, that really was a, the first big blow to newspapers. And you see a lot of newspapers consolidating. And that really speeds up with television in the yeah. 1950s. And so between in the 30s and 40s, as newspapers are consolidating and you're having fewer voices, there's kind of a movement in journalism to professionalize it more and, and to really be more that that unbiased ideal. And that you saw that a lot from really from the 1930s and 40s, you know, up through present day that, that now the standards for good journalism are that you can have opinions on the editorial page, but you want to present unbiased news. But if you look at cable television, that is kind of more the Wild West business model that newspapers used to be. You know, you have, you know, conservatives watch Fox and liberals watch MSNBC and, you know, they they have their own kind of spins, which are very similar to what you would have seen in newspapers in the 19th century. And, of course, today, newspapers have been completely affected, of course, by television and technology and the World Wide Web and and online publications. A lot of newspapers are no longer producing print. Well, and print really is going away. Yeah. And it, you know, the, the internet, the internet, I've always said would be, this would be considered the golden age of journalism with the internet if it only had a business model. <laughs> because you can now publish all kinds of information instantaneously around the world with video and audio and all kinds of great things. The trouble is, is that the internet that created these tools basically destroyed the traditional advertising model, you know, the model that supported newspapers going back to the Kentucky Gazette. You know, when you think about it, newspapers used to make most of their money from classified ads, which are now on Craigslist, or car ads, which are on various car sites, or real estate ads that are now on the realtor sites, and big department store ads, and most of the department stores have gone out of business. It's not that there isn't, there's no longer money in advertising, because there is, but if you look at the advertising market, it's well over $100 billion a year in the United States. And two companies get more than half of that. That's Google and Facebook because of the way the internet works, that they are portals. So that's really the problem is that, you know, there's no shortage of readers for traditional news organizations, but all the money is going to these portals that are not journalistic organizations. Even with television, it seems like with the news, a lot of the news is broken by newspaper outlets or journalists that are working. Um, It's not necessarily the employees of that news station. No, you know, a lot of people get their news from TV, but TV is good at covering live events. But Mm -hmm. local TV has never had a good track record, or really, frankly, cable TV, of doing investigative stuff or really just kind of public service journalism. You know, it's not good television in some ways. But yeah, that's really true is, is in any in any community, it'll be the newspaper where you have the really serious journalism that leads the conversation, and that's part of the concern is yeah. as news staffs continue to shrink. The Herald Leader still does some wonderful work, but there are just fewer journalists on staff to do that work. Yeah. 
Is there staff here in Lexington for the Herald-Leader? Oh, yeah. The newspaper is printed in Louisville because the Herald-Leader had bought new presses in 1980 when it built the building at Main and Midland, and those presses had been wearing out for a number of years. So and that's really why you're going to stop seeing print newspapers in a few years is because the printing plants will close. The presses will wear out, and it's not worth millions of dollars to invest in new presses. So that's why you know newspapers are very rapidly transitioning. But yeah, there's still about 30 journalists still working. But you know that's when I became managing editor in 1998. There were 155 in the newsroom. So 155 to 30. So they're still doing some terrific work. There's just many fewer of them to do it. It's been great talking to you, and, and I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us about the history of local newspapers. All right. Well, good to be here. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.